The scripture reading is John 1 through 42, and we have a couple of people who are going to read it for us. Oh, I'm the narrator, aren't I? You know what? I didn't even give myself a copy of it. That's good. Can you share? Can you two share or not? <laughs> I'll look over your shoulder. This is so good. I thought I didn't have that. Okay. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is very deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Sir, give me this water so that I may, I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Go, call your husband and come back. Um, I have no husband. You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when we will worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, 
Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him. Oh, is that all me? It is all me. <laughs> Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and complete his work. Do you not say four months more than comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages as in gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that you which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer what you, because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. No, that wasn't rehearsed either. Thank you, Pat and Mark. <laughs> it would help if the pastor had her head straight. When in doubt, you can actually open a Bible. Oh, yeah. At the beginning of this story, Jesus finds himself in Samaria. Actually, he chooses to go to Samaria, or rather through Samaria, as he travels from Judea, the southern part of Israel, to Galilee in the north. Most Jews would have taken a longer, supposedly safer route to avoid Samaria. Why? Because Jews didn't trust the Samaritans any further than they could throw them, and vice versa. I don't have time to go into the complicated reasons for this animosity, reasons that went back centuries. You just need to know that Jews and Samaritans did not get along at all, or as the scripture put it, they did not share anything in common with each other. That's putting it mildly. Yet Jesus chooses to go through Samaria rather than taking the long way around. And so we find him sitting next to a well in the city of Sychar in the noonday sun. He's tired, he's hot, and he's thirsty. Enter a woman who comes to the well carrying a water jar, and Jesus does what any of us would do. He asks her to give him a drink of water. What follows, however, is not at all what we might expect. Right away, the woman makes it clear that she will not be intimidated. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? He's Jewish, and she's Samaritan, yes, but Jesus is also breaking other social taboos, including the one against a man acknowledging the presence of a woman in public, and this woman knows it. Jesus is not offended by her rather uppity question. On the contrary, he draws the woman into conversation. If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman almost mocks Jesus. 
Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And then she goes further, challenging him. Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? Who do you think you are? Jesus responds in kind. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. At this point, the woman could have shook her head thinking this was a crazy man and turned on her heel and walked away. But she doesn't. Instead, as Jesus asked her for water, so now she asks him. She doesn't understand him, but she knows that she wants what he is offering. His next words catch her off guard. Go, call your husband and come back. For a moment, she stares at him, weighing his words, and then says, I have no husband. It is only a partial truth. But her admission is enough for Jesus, and he matches her revelation with his own. You are right in saying that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. At this point, it's important to note that Jesus commends rather than condemns this woman. For too long, she has been viewed as promiscuous. But neither Jesus nor the gospel writer indicate that her current state is the result of sinful behavior. She has experienced the heartbreak of losing five husbands, probably by death or divorce, over which she would have no control at all. Though we don't know why she is living with a man who is not legally in her husband. In those days, a woman who was not in a relationship with a father, a husband, a son, some man, could end up destitute or worse. Yes, she came to the well at the odd time, but it could have been that she just ran short of water. This woman's situation is far more likely to be tragic than scandalous, and Jesus knows it and understands her pain and her need. Their mutual revelations take the conversation to yet another level. The woman gets that this is more than a thirsty Jew with bad manners or even a person with something she needs. This man is a prophet. She almost jumps at the opportunity to ask about one of the major bones of contention would between their peoples, the location of their respective places of worship, that is, their beliefs about the dwelling place of God. Jesus again seeks to move her beyond her present understanding. The hour is coming, he says, and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks thus as the, such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The worship of God is not about location, he tells her. It's about the spirit with which we worship. It's about our relationship with God, the God whose dwelling place is now located in him, the word made flesh. Tentatively, the woman responds, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. 
Now their conversation reaches its pinnacle as Jesus offers the ultimate, the ultimate revelation to her. I am the one who is speaking to you. He's saying more than we might realize, for though our English and translations add the word he, as in I am he, that word is not present in the Greek. Jesus is claiming the very name of God, I am, a name revealed to Moses with the burning bush and so sacred that even today Jews do not say it or write it. This is the first time in this gospel that Jesus makes an I am statement. There will be many more. And he makes it to an unnamed woman, a Samaritan of no stature. In the words of Barbara Brown Taylor, it is the first time he has said that to another living soul. It is a moment of full disclosure in which the triple outsider and the Messiah of God stand face to face with no pretense about who they are. Both stand fully lit at high noon for one bright moment in time while all the rules, taboos, and history that separate them fall forgotten to the ground. The moment is broken when the disciples return from buying food in the town and are astonished to see Jesus talking to a woman. The woman leaves, but rather than being frightened away, she runs back to the city, leaving her water jar behind and crying out to her neighbors, come and see a man who has told me everything that I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? Her words masked Jesus' invitation to those who would become his first disciples. Come and see, and come, her neighbors do. In the meantime, when the disciples offer food to Jesus, he refuses to eat, telling them that he has already done so. Looking at his disciples' puzzled faces, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. And so they are. Jesus has accomplished that for which he came to Samaria. He has found a witness, a witness for whom he was likely seeking. And even as he speaks, that witness is gathering in the harvest. Jesus ends up staying two more days with the people of Sychar. And in the end, they tell the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is truly the savior of the world. Do you see the progression in which Jesus is seen in this story? From Jew to prophet to Messiah to savior. The light of the world stands revealed in the noonday sun and Jesus has not even died yet. This is the only time the Gospel of John uses the word savior. And theologian Catherine Lewis sees this entire story as an embodiment and acting out of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but may have eternal life. Jesus' encounter with the woman of Samaria shows us that God really does the whole world, not just Jews, but also Samaritans, 
not just Christians, but also Muslims and Hindus, Sikhs and Buddhists, atheists, agnostics, and everyone else. I love this story. And not just because it features a woman. It reminds me of a compassionate God who cares deeply about us, who reaches out to us, who seeks to be in relationship with us, and who offers us the living water of eternal life, not just in a future life, but right here and right now. As this woman sees Jesus for who he is, so he sees her for whom she is, a person of worth, a person who not only responds to him in spirit and truth, but is able to serve as his witness. And as he sees her, so he sees all of us, you and me, as persons of worth who are more than qualified to witness to Christ by sharing our experience of him. I also need this story, especially right now, in a blog about this story and the coronavirus, Rachel Keefe points out that the word pandemic means all people. All people will be involved as this disease spreads. And at the same time, this means that all people can take part in preparation and prevention. She writes, what can this passage tell us in these early days of this pandemic? One is that living water will not be changed by a virus. God will still be present and moving through the world as God has always done. Another is that social distancing, as encouraged, encouraged by the CDC and other experts, does not mean that we have to be alone or that God abandons us. We do not need to be emotionally and spiritually distant from our from one another. Keeping the recommended three or six feet away from people gathered in public places now ought not to make us fearful of others in a way that furthers any sense of isolation. We can make eye contact and talk with other people. We can remain unafraid of help to help our neighbors when they have need. Already, I'm hearing examples of people helping one another and you probably are too. Don was looking at the, uh, my husband, was looking at the Nextdoor app on his iPad yesterday and saw an entry from a woman who said that she couldn't find diapers for her newborn and toddler. Oh no. Fortunately, it wasn't long before several people offered them to her. Likewise, our administrative assistant, Tammy Setlovich, went to the 99-cent store to get groceries for Louise Malloy, and she would do it for anyone else who needed it. I have no doubt that many of you would do the same, if not all of you. We need to help one another, and we don't need, have to feel isolated. Rachel Keefe continues, while the Samaritan woman didn't have access to social media to curb her feelings of being unwanted and unwelcome, we do. We can continue to be church through creative uses of our resources. We can have worship online. We can create small groups of care partners who can remain in contact through video chat or phone or even in person, if everyone is well. Perhaps we can use this opportunity to learn new ways of embodying Christ. Fear does not have to be our constant companion. We can drink more deeply of the living water and remember that God's love knows no boundaries. 
I'll say it clearly because others are suggesting the opposite. This virus is not a punishment for sin nor God's comment on poverty. A God who is love would not and does not unleash viruses on God's people. God will remain present and loving through all that is to come. The living water of Jesus is able to reach depths that we cannot plumb, situations that are beyond our capacity to address. It gushes up with new life and overflows, crashing through the boundaries that make us fearful and separate us from God and each other. And we don't need a water jar or a bucket to receive it. It is available to us whenever we need it. It is ours for the asking, even when all those other supplies are scarce. Yes, we are in the midst of a crisis unlike any we have ever faced before. But whether we worship in this building or at home, whether we are gathered or scattered, we are still the people of God and the body of Christ. In spirit, if not in body, we can face this crisis together knowing that our God is faithful, that our God loves us, and that our God is with all of us. This is our prayer, and this is our hope, a rock-solid hope. Thanks be to God. Amen.